This episode is brought to you by a company, but not just any company, one of the craziest, most influential and awesome companies that has ever lived. I'm talking about Aloha.agency, A-L-O-A.agency, a digital marketing company that can handle anything from software development to WordPress to WooCommerce to massive product catalogs to custom LMSs, you name it. 3D design, video, social media video, and more to even writing outrageous scripts like this one that was written entirely by ChatGPT. Just kidding. But seriously, brands need a lot of stuff to grow and thrive in the digital age, and we do it all. So check out ALOA.agency for more information. And now, to the show. I'm Paul Shapiro, CEO of The Better Meat Co., where we are working every day to recreate the meat experience without animals. Joining us right now, folks, is Paul Shapiro. He is building a company that is on a mission to reinvent meat. They've got plug-and-play mycoprotein formulations, that's mushrooms, I believe, that quickly and cost-effectively enhance or even replace meat products while improving nutrition, flavor, and yield. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World, and the host of the Business for Good podcast, a podcast that I might add closely mimics what we're doing here on this podcast, except, of course, his is better, no doubt, because as a host, let's face it, I am mediocre at best. He's also a five time TEDx speaker and has published more than 100 articles on food sustainability. Now he's using mycoprotein to satiate humanity's collective meat tooth. So right here right now is Paul Shapiro. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Thank you for being here, Paul. Was any of that accurate? Uh, you did a great job, Ross. Congratulations. I'm, I am, I'm honored, and I'm psyched to be talking with you. Well, I am psyched to be talking with you because you not only talk the talk, but you've walked the walk and you've done so for a very long time. You've also taken the leap, not just talking with businesses that are building a better future, but you've also built one yourself. So where should we jump into your entrepreneurial journey or your journey for fighting for some sort of change in the world? Where does this arc begin? Uh, you're right. I, you, you said I've been doing this for a really long time, which definitely uh, feels true to me having, I, you know, when I'm now 44. And when I was 24, like I thought 44, that was like, you know, death's door. Like, you know, like I couldn't believe. Kids still do. On TikTok, yeah. you, you may as well be dead. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Like I was like, uh, I would have thought like, man, I hope I make it to 44, you know. Uh, and now, of course, Absolutely. I think like for, 44, I feel like I'm so young. Um, and still yeah. have a lot, a long way to go, I hope. But anyway, uh, I, from a young age, had a, a deep passion for uh, protecting animals and um, and the planet. And so uh, one of the key ways that that needs to occur is in the food system. So a lot of the times when we think about animal welfare, we're thinking about dogs and cats, and obviously they need protection too. Um, but the real source of the problem with our treatment of, of animals relates to you know chickens, turkeys, pigs, cows who are treated in ways that are, are pretty heinous. I won't describe them here for your uh, for your listeners, but you know, if, if dogs or cats were treated the way that chickens and turkeys were treated, uh, it would be criminal animal cruelty charges filed instantaneously. Right. Um, now, uh, the problem, of course, is that humans love to eat these animals. Uh, meat yep. demand is going up, not down. Um, it's going up all around the world for the most part. And we, uh, I would love it if people wanted to enjoy the more lentil soup and hummus 
wraps and bean and rice burritos. Uh, that's great. Those are great foods, but uh, people always seem to like meat. And in the places where it's going to matter the most in the future, China, India, Brazil, Mexico, meat demand is only going up. Again, it's not going yep. down. It's going up. So I spent a large part of my career working uh, mainly on public policy campaigns to try to get better uh, ways to produce the food that we produce, uh, either animal welfare improvements or climate change and so on. And um, I am proud of that work, but I around like 2015 or 2016, after been involved in this work for a couple of decades, I started thinking, well, probably food technology and food innovation, we're going to do more than what I was doing in order to solve the problem that it really animated my life, which was, as you put it, how can you satiate humanity's meat tooth, so to speak, without animals? Um, and I wasn't sure what I could do. Like, you know, I, was, I didn't have like an MBA from Harvard. I wasn't a microbiologist. I didn't have millions of dollars to invest. So I was thinking like, you know, what can I do? Well, I thought maybe I could write a book on the topic that would interest the people who do fit into those categories, MBAs, venture capitalists, scientists, and so on, to get involved in this space of actually trying to recreate the meat experience without animals. You know, it's just like with fossil fuels, we need to wean ourselves off of them. Um, but, you know, you're not going to ask people just to walk and bike. Uh, that'd be great if people would do that. But, you know, people seem to like to drive. So you got to make cars that don't rely on fossil fuels and other types of energy that is, you know, from solar, wind, geothermal, nuclear, and more. The same is true, though, with meat. Um, you know, people are, are not inclined to stop eating meat. And so we have to make ways to make meat that don't involve animals. There's lots of ways to do that. But I wrote about one of them. Um, in a book that I pitched and I got very lucky Ross like I had mm. never published a book before um, but right. I, I, I thought that I could and so I, I pitched it um, I pitched a proposal and Simon and Schuster purchased it and the book uh, came out about six years ago and it was really transformative in my life. The book is called Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And it did dramatically better than I would have ever anticipated. Um, it, it did That's hit awesome. the Washington yeah, I, I never made the the New York Times bestsellers list to, to my chagrin, but it did hit the Washington Post bestsellers list at least. Okay. Um, and considering that I'm from the Washington D.C. area, that made my mom particularly happy. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you, like it, it opened up a lot of doors. It was very transformative in my life in many ways, and I had a choice. I could continue writing about the people who I thought were going to solve this problem, or I could just become one of them myself. And I chose the latter. And so I uh, asked a, a friend of mine who actually did have an Harvard MBA if she wanted to leave her job as a management consultant and start this company with me. And so yeah, six years later, we're still running this thing. It's called the Better Meat Co. And as you pointed out, we're growing microbial fungi to recreate the meat experience. So uh, I can talk a little bit more later about what it is specifically that we're doing. But that's the winding journey that I made essentially from lobbyist to author to entrepreneur. You know, that very beaten path of lobbyist entrepreneur, <laughs> lobbyist yeah, to entrepreneur that, that happens. Yeah, It, right, it is yeah. an archetype only on this show, but not really in the larger world. <laughs> 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 it is a logical progression, but it does, it is, is somewhat strange. And I think in some ways you have had the guts to do what I haven't had to do. I mean, I have also interviewed, and that's why I loved to have you on. There are parallels. I also interview a lot of people. You've taken, a, I don't have a company for solving an issue directly. I have a marketing agency and I try to help companies such as yours and companies with a mission sell themselves, but I haven't yet taken that journey. But obviously, when you do talk to important people who have discovered this idea that business might be that vehicle for change, or at least rather, it's a hypothesis, if you will, that business might be a better vehicle for change, as you described, versus lobbying or just yelling at people from a soapbox, which is the <laughs> subtitle of my podcast. 
so you know, it's it's interesting that you actually took that leap and that you you have been able to do that. So, of all the things that you could have done, why did you choose to make an alternative meat protein? What why was that the most enticing way into this for you? Sure. Well, let's just think about the problem. So uh, obviously, as I mentioned, there's a real animal welfare driver for me. But at the same time, um, what we're doing is not sustainable. We cannot continue to raise and slaughter billions of animals for food because it's a massive user of uh, the planet. Huge amounts of deforestation, huge amounts of water usage, major contributions to climate change. In fact, according to the United Nations, the animal agriculture industry contributes more greenhouse gas emissions than the entirety of the transportation sector combined. So just let that sink in. You know, raising animals for food is a bigger contributor to climate change than all cars, all trucks, all planes, all boats, all trains, all combined. And it's so easy for us to like point our fingers outward and say, hey, you fossil fuel companies, you know, you're the problem. Um, But we have to think about this introspectively as well and recognize that one of the things that most of us do every single day, which is eat animals, um, is such a major driver. There is no possible way we're going to stay within our climate goals of 1.5 C of warming uh, without reducing the number of animals who we use for food. It's just not possible. Mm. And so, then the question becomes, okay, well, how do we get to that? As I mentioned earlier, like you could just ask people to eat less meat. Uh, that's great. You know, you don't, people don't have to necessarily become vegetarians. Um, I agree. If, you know, to, to fix, to get to that point, right, where, you know, you're going to say, you know, if, if everybody would, you know, let's say cut down on their meat by half, I mean, you could massively reduce the amount of deforestation and greenhouse gas emissions on the planet without one new person becoming vegetarian. Um However, most people haven't shown an interest in this yet. And, you know, the facts are very overwhelming in favor of doing this for the environment, for animal welfare, for personal health and public health benefits. But the reality that we have to accept, the cards that we are dealt, is that people really want meat. And so to answer your question directly, Ross, my view is that if we are serious about wanting to cut down on the number of animals who we're using for food, we have to give people the foods that they want just produced in a much better way. In other words, in the same way that we give people cars that don't rely on gasoline, we can give them meat that doesn't rely on the slaughter of animals. So how do you do it? Well, there's lots of different ways. I mentioned earlier, like with energy, you've got geothermal, you've got solar, you've got wind. These are all different paths of getting to that same end of producing clean energy. Well, there are many paths to getting to a a, uh, animal-free meat product or animal-free dairy or eggs and so on. Mm. And one of them, uh, which is the dominant method used, is just plant-based meat, right? You take foods like wheat or peas or soybeans, and you convert them into things that look like hamburgers, chicken nuggets, and sausages. And that's what companies that are well-known, like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, are doing. And those are good companies, and they're making cool products, and I I like eating them. Uh, However... They are expensive. They're more expensive than animal meat typically, and uh, they still are uh, relatively easily discerned from animal meat. They're not perfect replicas. Most of the time, you know, you eat a Beyond Burger, even if you like it, you may think that you can tell that it's not actual animal meat. And so if you don't want to use plants, you can then go to the animal kingdom and just take actual microscopic animal cells from animals and grow them without the animal. It's a process. I've a few of those, which is also fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah. So in my book, Clean Meat is largely about that topic. It's about how to grow real animal meat, not a meat substitute, not a meat replacement, not an alternative meat, but real animal meat from animal cells. And this is a really cool technology also, but it's plagued with current problems that are not prohibitive to its success by any means, but mean that it will not be on the market in any meaningful way the, uh, in in the coming uh, handful of years, so you know, plant based meat is on. Every, so, you, know, you can get it at every Burger King in America, every major supermarket, Walmart, everything. Right? They they all have plant based meat. But even the most well funded of the cultivated meat companies assert that they don't have, they don't plan to have product on supermarket shelves until the year twenty thirty. So you know, we're recording this at the very end of 2023. So you know, you're talking like six, seven years before they're even going to have a product on the market. And plant-based meat has been on the market for decades, decades, and it still is not even one percent by volume of total animal meat. You need to think about like solar, wind, geothermal, and the percentage they take up of our energy grid. And it's way more than one percent. Um, but plant-based meat is still uh, less than one percent of the volume of animal-based meat in the United States and even smaller around the world. And for cultivated meat to get to 1%, you're, you're going to be, you know, a decade, two decades, I don't know. It's very far off. I, I hope that something happens that changes the game that makes what I'm saying uh, turn out to be false. But I, I think even the most optimistic people think that in order to get to 1% of the domestic meat market, which would be more than a billion pounds of cultivated meat, you're talking about a very far off distance. And we don't have the time to wait. You know, the mm. earth is on fire literally now. And so we just don't have the time to wait. So yeah. there is a third way. You can go to the plant kingdom, you can go to the animal kingdom. But there's a third way, and it's the F word, fungi. And that's what we do at the Better Meat Co. Yeah, earlier, Ross, you mentioned mushrooms, kind of, but only tangentially. I, I knew related. I was going to get flack for that. <laughs> I, knew, I knew as soon as I put <laughs> it out, I was like, ah, dang it. Uh, the, uh, you know, there's Swing nobody who loves yeah, not really. It's like a swing and a, a foul ball, maybe. A foul ball, uh, yeah. yeah. Not, not like a total that. miss, yeah. Um, but look, nobody loves mushrooms more than I do, and you seem like a fun guy yourself, so I'm sure you Ooh, love mushrooms too. Thank you. Um, but don't worry, we have uh, we don't you know we have a lot of room, maybe even too much room in this world for a lot of different ways to use fungi. And thank you. Uh, so we can use fungi in lots of different ways. Yes, you can grow mushrooms, but you can also grow mycelium, which is the root-like structure of the fungi. And you can grow it from microscopic spores. And what we do at the Better Meco is we take microscopic spores, little microscopic fungi, and we subject them to a very special kind of fermentation that within less than one single day produces a product that comes out of the fermenter as a true meat alternative without almost any downstream processing whatsoever. And so in less than a day, we can go from inoculation of the fermenter to harvesting of the fermenter with a product that is more textured like meat than the current meat alternatives are and is a single ingredient whole food alternative meat that on its own boasts an extremely impressive nutritional profile, meaning it has more protein than eggs, and it's a complete protein, meaning it has all the amino acids. It's got more iron and zinc than beef. And it's got more fiber than oats, more potassium than bananas, and it naturally contains vitamin B12, which is typically lacking in plant-based foods. In other words, you get all the things about meat that you want, the texture, the iron, the zinc, the protein, but you don't get all the things you don't want. You don't get the saturated fat. You don't get the cholesterol. You don't get the lack of fiber. And importantly, you don't get the enormous environmental and animal welfare footprint that slaughter-based meat 
uh, brings with it. And so what we at the Better Meco are seeking to do is to scale this technology. We've already been granted numerous patents on our technology, and now we're working to scale this technology so that we can actually create a river of our mycoprotein to flow through the food industry, allow humanity to enjoy the meat experience that it so craves, but with a much, much lighter footprint on the planet. Mm. So why do you think it is that, you know, there have been many people who have attempted to do this. Obviously, PETA gets a lot of flack for decades. They've been talking about this. I even resisted it as a kid. I'll be the first to admit. I remember in my high school before I discovered and explored other books that led me to becoming vegan for a few years. Now I would consider myself uh, mostly plant-based, occasionally eating fish, but I've reduced my meat into, I don't eat chicken or beef and I haven't done for probably 14 years. Um, but for you. when I was in high school, PETA came around to my school and they wanted to show a video of a slaughterhouse. And I resisted. I said no, as did most people. It was basically cool to not go because you don't want to see. You just you don't you don't want to know what's going on there. And PETA has done campaigns along the lines of what you said earlier, like they've put up billboards in town where they show a, a dog, a cat. And then they show a chicken and a cow and they say, where do you draw the line? And then there are memes on the Internet where somebody draws a line between the dog and the chicken and says, right about here. <laughs> like, why do people just shut off their logic yeah. and reasoning when it comes to discussing these problems? Mm -hmm. Why is it such an emotional and visceral thing? Why do people see, feel so personally attacked when yeah. you suggest to reduce their meat? Why is it so hard to get people to see this issue for what it is? or even to accept the facts that you mentioned, of course, of which there are tons. Yeah. Well, first of all, Ross, let me just congratulate you. If everybody did what you did, the problem would be dramatically lessened. And frankly, I'd go devote my life to something else, most likely. So, yep. um, I, you know, I, I, I will always caution people against, you know, viewing this as all or nothing. Like, you know, if people want to start the with the same way. Yeah, yeah, people want to start with a meat. You want to start with a meatless Monday. That's great. If you want to Absolutely. go on and and do like uh, Mark Bittman, the cookbook author, he does this thing that he calls vegan before six. So every day until six p.m. he's vegan, then after six p.m. he eats whatever he wants. Uh, or you can go whole hog, or maybe even no hog, and be you know you can be right. vegan be vegan before six p.m. and vegan after six p.m. But either sure. way, like the goal the goal is to continue to try to lower our own footprint. You're never going to be right. perfect. There's no point in trying to you know, lead a no, a no impact life. It's fruitless, but we can make improvements. And so this is one of the most important things uh, that we can do to try to uh, reduce the impact that our life has on the planet. Now, all that said, you're asking a really poignant question, which is why do people resist this so much? And I think it's just very hard for people to have the cognitive dissonance that is entailed in accepting that the animals who are used to feed us are tortured. And they are. Like, you can't get around it. It's a hard thing to say. Nobody wants to hear it. You clam up when you hear it, actually. Um, but it is the reality. And most people don't like that because most people, you know, we hold on to one idea, which is that we are a good person. You know, we are somebody who maybe even cares about animals. Uh, we're somebody who cares about not causing suffering to others. And then on the other hand, uh, you know, obviously the animals who are being uh, raised and slaughtered to feed us are being treated in ways that are so heinous that most people don't even want to bear witness to it. Like you didn't, right? You yeah. didn't even want to watch a video, yeah, let alone what you... Because you know right. that it's going to shock right. you. You know it's going to be terrible. And that's why you just say better to not... Right, exactly. And so I just think it's very difficult 
for people to hold those two uh, views at the same time, which is the way that we view ourselves and then what some of these things say about us. Now, look, again, nobody's perfect. Nobody is going to you know, come around and be the police and say, oh, look at you. You say you're good, but you do X. Well, there's lots of things that we do. You know, like I just uh, I, I just got back from flying for a vacation. Somebody say, oh, well, why'd you fly? That's polluting, too. Like, right. you know, nobody is saying, oh, you got to be perfect. The question is, you know, what can you do to try to improve and that's one of the things that we can and should do um, is to look at our own diets and think about how we might be able to make more sustainable, more humane choices. I mean, I'm perfect and I do my best to try to tolerate <laughs> yeah. others. Yeah, that's a very good Yeah, When I said nobody's perfect, I meant mere mortals. I didn't mean you. Yeah, else. other than me, uh, most people are not perfect. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, the, you, you brought up an interesting thing. And, and, there's this notion that I have of popularity as well. We know that in the United States, 5 to 8% of all people consider themselves vegetarian. A much smaller percentage consider themselves vegan. Um, so anytime we mention this, even putting this in the title of a video like this or a podcast like this, it's instant tune out to even watch something like this because, again, it is an extreme minority that we're talking about. Some studies say that over 10% of adults... 18 and over, so it's slightly higher, 18 and over versus 18 and younger, which is skewing it. But still, it's 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 quite a minority yeah. that even consider themselves attempting to do this kind of stuff. So knowing that it's uh, ultra unpopular and knowing that so many people resist these ideas uh, so much, what do you think we can do to get the message across to somebody that, you know, maybe take a look at this or maybe slightly yeah. reevaluate it? You know, because you could yeah. offer this meat alternative, but it's that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You can give somebody a perfect alternative, but how do you make them take a bite? Yeah. And, and there's even evidence that people, when they know it's a meat alternative, that they rate it much less favorably than if they right. were given it blind and they didn't know that it was a meat alternative. Right. I've so, seen that on talk shows and people yeah. have been called out many times. Like, I'm a meat expert. I can tell a sausage. And then somebody goes, which one? I like that one best. That was the meatless one. They're, I mean, I, yeah. there's footage of this. Yeah, I actually, like that. yeah, yeah. I actually remember my uh, one time my grandfather, may he rest in peace. I made him spaghetti with meatballs, and he was raving. This is the best meatball I've ever had. He doesn't want my grandmother to know about it because he. And then of course. Right. And then, of course, I revealed to him that these are plant-based meatballs. And he's like, oh, you know, I could tell there was something different. I could tell that there was something And then he shot off. you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then he disowned uh, you forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah thankfully not. But I, I will say, like, uh, you know, look. What needs to happen is that plant-based eating needs to become cool in the way that Tesla made electric vehicles cool. Yeah. Like, you know, it used to be that the idea of hybrids or electric vehicles was something that, you know, people who were, you know, greens wanted to do, right? It wasn't something yeah. that was necessarily cool or a status symbol. And now, you know, Tesla is basically a synonym for, uh, you know, like a high status lifestyle. Um, and so I, I do think that the more that we can have people who are cultural influencers, whether they're popular celebrities or athletes, et cetera, yeah. to make plant-based eating more cool. Like if you look at the documentary on um, Netflix called The Game Changers, you know, this mm. is a, a very powerful documentary to show that like many of the best athletes in the world are people who enjoy plant-based eating. Um, in fact, even for me, I remember when I was a teenager, you know, I worshipped Carl Lewis, who, you know, for people who are young, you may not know who Carl Lewis was, or he still is alive. So who Carl Lewis is, but, you know, Carl Lewis is like the number one Olympian in the world back then. And he was kind of like the Usain Bolt or the Michael Phelps of our era, right? Like everybody knew him, everybody thought he was an amazing athlete. And 
Um, I read an interview with him back in the early 90s, and he said that one of his secrets to success was being vegan. And not even vegetarian, just vegan. And here's, you know, the most decorated at the time, the most decorated Olympian of all time. And he was vegan. Like, it wasn't just that you could get by as a vegan. This guy was thriving. And so that had a big influence on me uh, as a kid to, to read that Carl Lewis was my hero. Fun fact, I actually bought silk soy milk the other day, and I saw Carl Lewis was on the carton. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, who are they marketing to who knows who Carl Lewis is? And I thought, <laughs> me, they're marketing to me. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're, marketing, they're, they're marketing to like middle-aged men, basically. Uh, so anyway, uh, the point is that um, I think that we need to make this something that is going to have a broader appeal than what it currently has, which is basically to, you know, animal lovers or environmentalists. It needs to yeah. be much broader. And there's a number of people who are working to do that. And I really admire Game Changers is one example of that. Mm. Um, but even if you watch the documentary Forks Over Knives, which is another Netflix documentary, mm. um, these are all good things that I think make it clear to people just how much is in it for them. It's not just yeah. an altruistic act. It's something that will actually uh, give you much better chance of living long and having not just a long lifespan but a longer health span meaning you're gonna be healthy longer into mm. your old age mm. i want to take a quick uh, detour just to get your opinion on something that's slightly uh, related but one of the things that i find most disturbing if you look at these communities for vegans it's no secret from anybody whether they're in the plant-based community or not vegetarian anybody who's in this space understands that vegans are in their own ecosystem and world. They're very uh, quick to say that it's not a diet and they're very extraordinarily <laughs> harsh. When you get into the actual vegan communities, they're extraordinarily harsh. You could say even zero tolerance of, of any of the ideas that we talked about, like reduction. One of the things I find very fascinating, and again, like I was a literal vegan for two years, not a single plant. And then I, my life changed a little bit. What I find interesting is that they hate people like me who have reduced their intake by over 96% because <laughs> they hate vegetarian. I've seen bumper stickers of vegans that hate vegetarians most of all because if you're aware enough to know that there's a problem and you aren't 100% vegan, you are worse than the ignorant meat eater who eats meat breakfast, lunch, and dinner every single day because they're unaware of the problem <laughs> and therefore are ignorant. How the hell does that make sense? And why have they chosen yeah. to demonize people who are essentially on their side or who could even more quickly become part of their right. side? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think you're addressing a phenomenon that is real among some, but not all vegans. And I will say the following about that. You know, first and foremost, this is not a religion, right? Like to religious fanatics, the apostate is always worse than the infidel, right? So somebody who sold out, who gave up the religion is worse for them than the infidel who never believed in the first place, right? And right. the reason that is, is because it challenges their their believer's personal identity. If the person who quote unquote sold out, right, they walked away from the religion was once a believer and now they're not, what does that say about your level of commitment? Because you could be the next apostate, you could be the next sellout. And so they, that's why religious fanatics oftentimes uh, have a much bigger problem with those who have left the religion than those who never believed in the first place, because it really is an attack on their personal identity. Um, and, and that's a big problem because look, you know, this is not a religion, 
right? Like this doesn't take the place of a religion for people. This is a practical decision to try to do the best that you can in a world that is very far from imperfect. In fact, you, Ross, use the term be 100% vegan. There's not even any such thing. There's no, literally no such thing. Like you're always going to be causing some harm to animals. Yes. And you know, for people to say, oh, well, you're worse than the ignorant meat eater or whatever the, the term <laughs> right. that you, whatever the term that you used was, like, not from the animal's perspective, from the animal's perspective, if somebody is 96%, it, you know, it's, it's, you may as well do nothing else. So there's, there's almost no difference. It's such a marginal difference. It's like a rounding right. error in everything else. Even Peter Singer, the author of Animal Liberation, who is credited with starting the modern animal rights movement in the United States and really around the world, uh, even he will say, you know, look, I'm vegan when I'm at home, but when I'm traveling, if it's not easy to be, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll eat whatever is offered to me, basically. Yep. And so I, I just think we got to give up these black and white distinctions where it seems like it's so, all or nothing or it's good or bad. Like that, you know, when you ask for an all or nothing, you're almost always going to get nothing. And we shouldn't make it appear that if you slip up or you do something like once every one, once in a while, that you're not part of the in-group, so to speak. Like, it's so foolhardy. And, you know, it reminds me of one time I was giving a talk and a woman in the audience raised her hand and she said, you know, I, I think that I could be vegetarian, uh, but, you know, the reason I don't is I, I just can't give up, I can't say no to my grandmother's Thanksgiving turkey. Sure. And I said, well, then eat the turkey and be a vegetarian 364 other 364 days of the year. Other days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what is it? Like, well, why is this, a, why is this a hard decision? Ham. You know, it's not like people and think like, oh, it, it's a, yeah, it should not be a hard decision to make. Uh, yeah. And, you know, we, it, it, but I, I see this also with people like when you have like a, a friend of mine who's, let's say like they're trying to lose weight and they'll be like, oh, well, I had this cake at this party. So I just fell off the wagon. It's like, well, you know, you had cake at a party. Okay. That doesn't mean you got to fall off the wagon every other day too. Like if you, you know, you fall yeah. off your, you know, the, the diet that you're trying to go with, well, okay, that's fine. Get back on the wagon then. Um, and that's the, way that I, that's the way that I view plant-based eating. You could imagine if Jainists, the people who uh, subscribe to the belief of Jainism, if they had a bumper sticker that said, I don't break for vegans, you know, even vegans uh, could be below <laughs> somebody, you know, for example, like if you just choose to pick a bone with somebody. Anyway, yeah, that's a good joke. I'm, I'm, I'm trademarking that one. Um, well, okay, so that's let's good. get back to the company. Uh, you have one of the most interesting things about your company. Again, I've been exploring this topic in depth for nearly 200 episodes now, many such people in this space. Uh, the, the depth and variety of foods that you're emulating on the Better Meat Company website is is great. You have fish, you have uh, crab cakes, you have uh, foie gras. So talk to me about making the depth. Do you just, you know, soak the mycoprotein in uh, raw sewage and river water? Is that the source of the crab? Like what makes the crab crab and the, the fish yeah. fish, the chicken the chicken, um, the steak the steak? Yeah, we've had a hard time with the FDA on the raw sewage. Like we tried applying yeah. raw sewage to the product over and over, so but they delicious. kept rejecting. They kept rejecting yeah. us. It, the reason I liked it was because it was such a cheap substrate. You know, it really so saved weird. us money. Um, but I figure <laughs> as a crabby taste. As a as a as a true CEO, I had to try to cut costs at any at any <laughs> at any in any way I could. Um, no, so after we stopped using raw sewage to treat the product, um, we started using uh, yeast extracts. And there's different; it's really cool. There's different yeast extracts impart different flavors, and so you can have yeast extracts that are imparting a crab type flavor, or a beef type flavor, or a fish flavor, etc. And so it's really cool. It's pretty cool um, that you can have uh, this natural ingredient that does that. Now, all at the same time, the base is still the same. The base is our mycoprotein. So we grow, again, that microbial protein that we can grow via fermentation and churn it out so you have a, a texture that is naturally meat-like, then we dry it down into a granule, 
And then you can control the texture of the product by how much hydration you re-add to it. So if you want something that's a looser meat, like a crab actually, you would add more water. If you want something that's a much tighter meat, um, let's say like a steak or something, then you would have uh, less water. And then you can impart the flavor that you want with various types of plant-based oil and also uh, yeast extracts to impart that flavor. So it, it's a really amazing, all-natural, very simple, unprocessed product, and it's very versatile. Now, our goal was not to sell steaks and crab cakes. You know, we're a B2B ingredients company. Our goal is to sell the other companies the ingredient that they can then use to go out and make the next generation of alternative meats. So one of the most interesting things I saw was that you sell uh, a foie gras. So to get that, do you stuff the duck mycoprotein with the deli slices yeah. mycoprotein and harvest? Yeah. That's just such we, an interesting we, texture. Yeah. yeah, we have to force feed the duck the mycoprotein right. first. And, and so then you get the combination. And then you harvest. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> no, uh, we do not do that. No, interestingly enough, so I, I live in California, as do you, and uh, California is a state that not only has been the production of foie gras because it is so cruel and inhumane to force feed ducks and geese to cause fat in livers, but California has also been the sale of foie gras. And I so it's illegal that. for any restaurant okay. to sell foie gras. So we wow. are selling a legal foie gras that is made from microbial fermentation. Rather than tormenting ducks and geese to produce a product that is criminally cruel in, in yeah. California, uh, we just run a fermentation. And then because foie gras, which is uh, French for fatty liver, uh, we add you know a good amount of oil to it. And the combination of the oil and our microbial protein creates a product that is comparable to foie gras and the in the delicacy nature of it um, and is even better for you and most people aren't eating foie gras because they care about the nutrition they're mainly after that uh, the sensory experience but it is better for you because um, it has zero cholesterol and, and it also has less fat so it's a great product um, and it's sold in restaurants and people really like it yeah so when it comes to the future recognizing all the problems of the future as you do. You said the planet's on fire. You feel that the urgency, uh, which I think I do as well, and many people do, others don't, or at least they don't appear to. Would you classify yourself as generally optimistic or pessimistic about the future and humanity's role in the future? Um, I am relatively optimistic about the future for humanity, but I am more pessimistic about the future for the rest of the planet. So I, I think that climate change is going to cause all types of problems, especially for the people who are at the lower end of the socio socioeconomic spectrum around the world. Um, I don't necessarily mean within the United States, although maybe, but I mean really more like you know people who are living in the developing world where they don't have the amenities that we have from air conditioning and other ways that you can you know basically insulate yourself from what's going to come. And there's going to be a lot of climate refugees. It's going to cause a lot of political instability around the world. Um, but overall. I think that humanity does have a pretty bright future. The problem is that that's largely at the expense of every other species on the planet. And so we have higher extinction rates than at any time in the last 66 million years on the planet today. And you know what caused the mass extinction 66 years ago was a gigantic asteroid that hit the planet. Today, that asteroid is us. It is yeah. Homo sapiens. And we are causing huge numbers of extinctions every single day. Every day, we are ushering animals off the earthly stage who have lived here for millions of years. And most of the reason for the destruction of biodiversity 
is because we are deforesting the planet. We are, it's not just climate change, it is really that we're ending their habitat. And the biggest cause of deforestation is meat production. And so it's not, it's not an, uh, an overstatement to say that humanity's desire to eat animals is a driving factor in causing wildlife extinction. And so that's why I am um, skeptical about the future for most non-humans. Now, of course, maybe our dogs are going to be okay um, and, and so on. But for most animals who call the planet home, we've already driven their numbers so far down that you know we already have, on a biomass basis, uh, more weight from humans and the animals who we own, cows, chickens, pigs, etc., than all wildlife combined. Um, so, you know, this is a really sad thing to consider what we've done. You know, the planet used to be a lot of free living animals. Uh, now the planet is largely humans and the animals who we own. And that is a major transformation on the face of this planet that has never seen anything like this in the entire Earth's history. So... Uh, for people like you and me, no, I think we're going to have pretty decent lives, actually. You know, we're already living lives, and I presume most people listening to this podcast are living lives that are more comfortable than 99% of humans who've ever lived, ever, in all of humanity's history. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not at the expense of a huge number of other individuals who have done nothing to cause the crisis, but yeah. will be victims of it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's so true. So now that you've spent your time actively building a company, and again, we talked about the very typical path of going from lobbyist yeah. to <laughs> ultimately yeah. ending up to being an entrepreneur. Now that you're, what'd you say, six years on or a handful of years on in this project, do you feel that you made the right choice? Do you feel good about that decision each day? Do you feel fundamentally better fighting the good fight in this particular way? Um, I view it kind of like the following, like I'm beating my head against a wall over and over and over again. And some people will say like, you know, why are you doing that? Your head is going to break. And I think, well, I'll keep doing it because I think that the wall is going to break before my head does. And so I had made, uh, I, sadly, I couldn't find anything where somebody else had already done this. So maybe I'm the first person who did it. But I, uh, I had made by this artist a portrait of Sisyphus finally triumphant with the boulder at the top of the mm -hmm. hill. And he's like on his yeah. knees and, he's, and he, he has his hands there. raised, you know. <laughs> Right. And that's, that's what I want to get to. Like, I feel like I'm rolling a boulder up a hill all the time. Like, you know, sometimes uh, entrepreneurship is glamorized and you look at people who've had tremendous success, but it ignores the reality that, you know, 90% of startups fail, massive infant mortality rate. It's very difficult to do. Um, ben Horowitz from the VC firm Andreessen Horowitz had a really funny line in his book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, where he said that, you know, if you start your own company, you will sleep like a baby because you will wake up every two hours and cry. Oh and, you so know, true. like, I, I, yeah, and I, I definitely so feel that. Like, I, I definitely I feel, feel that. that. Um, however, like, I am extraordinarily grateful for this experience because I get to work with people, one who I really like, but also people who are really devoted to pushing our, uh, our rock collectively up that hill together. And I'm very honored to be in a position to do that where our team members and our board of directors and our investors all have that faith in me to be able to push that boulder to a place where we will finally perch it on top of the hill and declare victory. Now, it's a very hard thing to do but I'm grateful for the opportunity, and I really am, am fortunate to be in the position that I'm in. There are things that I think I would have done differently if I could go back um, and figure it out 
other ways that maybe we could have uh, achieved the same end or even better ends for with different decisions made. But you know, there's that's the way that life inherently is. You cannot go back and and take do replays, right? You can only continue moving forward and mm. trying to press the ball down the field. So um, we have uh, had many successes and many struggles, and I hope that we learn from uh, from both of them. In the next couple of years, if you could move that boulder just a little bit further up the hill, what would the next step look like? We've created a really fantastic state-of-the-art pilot plant facility for mycelium production here in Sacramento. The problem is that the fermenter that we utilize can only produce like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of material per year. It cannot produce millions or tens of millions, which is really what we need in order to be a successful business. And so if we were to push that boulder further up the hill, what it would look like is creating a much larger fermenter somewhere else. And so imagine like a fermenter is basically a farm, right? You're doing indoor farming, but it's all controlled. You take a natural process, you wrap it in stainless steel and you allow it to occur in there. So we have a real, we have a crop that is like magic. And so imagine we're just growing gold, but you have a crop that you can only grow on one acre because that's all the land you have. And we have demand for thousands of acres. And so what we need is the equivalent of thousands of acres more of land to produce our magic crop, which is meaning much bigger fermenters. And I don't mean fermenters that are, you know, a few stories tall. I mean, fermenters that are, you know, like 20, 30, 40 stories tall. Uh, that is, that is the way that we get to industrial production of our process so that we can actually compete on cost with meat and get to a place where we can make the dent in the problem that this company was founded to have. That's that's awesome. Well, I wish you very much luck. I personally have a vested interest in seeing that. I would love to see you succeed. I would also love to try these products. They sound very interesting. And uh, I think yeah. in, in comparison to Carl Lewis's time and even in comparison to when I began my journey, what, like I said, what, 14 years ago, 13 years ago, I'm not sure. The variety of foods that are available has gone up tremendously. The variety of meat substitutes, alternatives, that what was once one product has now morphed into an entire section. I look forward to that process continuing with the products that you are uh, creating and that you're responsible for. So I'm very excited and I have a vested interest in your success. So from one lowly data point, keep going, keep pushing that boulder. Uh, you know, you've got people who are cheering you on in the face of what I can only imagine is, is sometimes feels like extraordinary opposition. Well, thanks, Ross. I really appreciate that. That's very kind of you. And because you live in the same state that I do, if you ever want to come up to Sacramento, I would love to not only host you at our factory so you can see what we're building and taste what we're building, but I'll take you out to some restaurants that also serve our products so you can order it off a menu and have that experience. That sold. That sounds like an awesome thing. I would love to do okay. that. That's what I'm all about. All right. uh, let's Great. let's get it on the books. Um, cool. Last bit before we wrap it up here, for people who want to contribute, but they're not quite sure how. Maybe they're you 20 years ago or 19, you know, somewhere along that journey. What advice do you have? Are there steps that they might skip? Uh, are there, how can they get started? Is building a company the way in? Should they start somewhere else? Where to begin making the impact? Oh, there's so much that needs to be done. What I would be thinking about are ways that you can recreate the meat experience for cuts of meat that are pretty expensive because it's hard to get the price down. You know, you want to compete mm-hmm. on cost with the cheapest meat like chicken um, or pollock, which is what the fish that's used for fish sticks at McDonald's and so on. Um, you know, that's really hard. 
But if you want to start looking at other really major sustainability problems, let's say like crab, which is a very major sustainability problem, so is shrimp as an example, you know, these are meats that are very expensive. And so you can actually compete and even beat them on cost time and time again without any major uh, technological breakthroughs. So I'd be looking at that. Um, how can we replace some of the biggest sustainability problem meats that are actually pretty expensive? And uh, there's not that much, you know, like if you want to start another plant-based burger company, there's so many of them out there right now. It's like an oversaturated space, maybe. Mm. I don't say oversaturated, but it's it's a busy space. Um, yeah. And though, you know, you know, how many companies are doing crab and shrimp? Not that many. So uh, that would be my encouragement. Look at where there are more white spaces. And there's other ones too. If, if you uh, want to contact me, I'd welcome hearing from you. Our website is bettermeat.co. You can contact me through there. And I'd love to hear from you and uh, figure out what you can do to try to help solve this extremely vexing problem of how we are going to feed humanity without destroying the planet. I love it. And you know, one quick thing, thinking of the crab, have you ever seen that show Deadliest Catch? Do you know that show? Uh, on like planes, sometimes I see it on the back screen, the screen behind the chair. You know, yeah, I've seen I don't like know people watching it. it. Yeah, they did at least a decade ago. But they show the crab fishermen on these boats and the process that they go through to collect this crab. They're going on these incredibly choppy waters. It's freezing. Icicles are forming from the water. You've got a captain who hasn't slept in days, just chain smoking <laughs> cigarettes. And so, so I I get so stressed out watching that show. It's just incredible. Yeah. And to think, you know, maybe we don't need to do that anymore. I mean, it's just, and their voices, yeah. like, we need to get, like, it, it looks like a mess. And yeah. if we can definitely... somehow avoid that hornet's nest, that might be an added bonus too. I, I would think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that's a job that most people would want to have. And the same is so with slaughterhouses. You know, most people don't right. want to be slashing animals through its all day. Um, and, but it's also like there's a real serious sustainability concern. Like w one of the biggest threats to whales is not whaling boats, but crabbing lines. Um, mm. So like if you, you know, you want to make sure that, you know, like we banned uh, whaling long ago for commercial purposes, yet we're killing more whales <laughs> from crabbing, the crabbing industry. Uh, so, uh, and then you take into the fact that 100% of these crabs are going to be boiled to death, which is, it sounds like a medieval torture. Um, you know, the fact is, not that pretty. So no. you want to start that new alt crab company? Let me know. I'd love to talk to you about <laughs> okay, it. Get in touch. Well, I can't thank you enough, Paul Shapiro. You're a very in intelligent person, and I appreciate you taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to hear your side of things. I wish you the best of luck in all the future endeavors. And uh, with that, the official podcast is over. Hoo thank you for listening to another episode of the Beat the Off and Path podcast. I can't thank you enough for making it to the end of this episode. If I could give you a gold star, I would. Just pretend that I'm sticking one on your forehead right now. Okay, that got a little creepier than I thought it would be. But in any case, if you've made it this far, that means you're a supporter of at least one episode. Have you listened to some of the others? Have you checked out some of the back catalog of amazing guests who are building a better future and doing just outrageous stuff? Or have you considered leaving a nice review or sharing an episode with your social platform to help the show grow? Anything you can do to be a part of the show would be great. And of course, if you have guest recommendations who are truly building a new planet for us all in a better way, send them on through. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>